From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There is a lot riding on the census results, but could delays end up costing Colorado accurate representation in Congress? We'll break down the timeline of what has to happen when. Plus, when nurse Laurel Carpenter volunteers to give vaccines in the Grand Junction Convention Center, she likes to get the closest table to the front to celebrate with people as they arrive. She'll share some special moments in a year that's put her own health in repeated danger. Then, a recently launched daily news podcast that wants to enable Denverites to be better and more curious citizens with host Bree Davies. I'm going to talk with artists, politicians, activists, teachers, historians, and neighborhood and community experts just like you. And the amazing journey of the Colorado Rockies comeback kid. Every day on CPR News, you hear stories that transport you out of your world and help you understand the lives of others all across the state and beyond. Hi, I'm Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. Colorado Public Radio brings you impactful journalism that's only possible because you value and support it. You rely on CPR News to keep you informed. Please support this vital service by donating at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado undergoes redistricting every 10 years based on the latest census data. This time around, the state will use a new process. Two nonpartisan commissions will redraw the boundaries to reduce the chances of political gerrymandering or redrawing districts to benefit one party over the other. The Congressional Redistricting Commission is tasked with redrawing the map for the U.S. House of Representatives. The Legislative Redistricting Commission will redraw the map for the Colorado General Assembly. To give us an update on how all of this works, I'm joined by Colorado Matters producer Carla Jimenez. Hi, Carla. Hi, Avery. Remind us what's at stake for Colorado during the redistricting process this time around. Uh, On the federal level, a lot is at stake. Uh, We don't have the official 2020 census numbers yet, but according to the numbers from last year, Colorado's population was more than 5.7 million people. That represents a 14.5% increase in population since 2010. And most experts say this means Colorado will get an eighth seat in the House of Representatives. If that's confirmed, the Congressional Redistricting Commission will have to decide what that new district will look like. You said we don't have the official 2020 numbers yet. Isn't that unusual? Yeah, it it is. In previous redistricting years, the Census Bureau released data by March 31st. But this year, the pandemic really threw a wrench in the Bureau's timeline. Officials announced in February that states won't get apportionment numbers until April 30th. And apportionment is how the country divides how many representatives each state gets. So April 30th is likely when people will hear whether Colorado has gained an eighth seat. But the real delay will be with the redistricting data. Now, this data is more granular because it shows population at the precinct level. And it's what the Legislative Redistricting Commission will use to redraw the House and Senate districts for the General Assembly. That data isn't expected to be available until September 30th. Does that delay cause any issues? Well, it it causes a lot of stress. The redistricting process has several deadlines to meet throughout the year that have been set by the Colorado Constitution. Uh, First, the Legislative Redistricting Commission has to approve a preliminary map 
by September 15th, which is already two weeks before the census is supposed to release the data. After that, the commission has to hold hearings for public comment, and then the Colorado Supreme Court has to approve the final plans by December 30th. After the plans are finalized, the county clerks have to redraw their precincts, and all of that has to be completed 29 days before the precinct caucuses on March 1st. So the delay in census data will cause a huge ripple effect on the timeline for all of the 2022 elections. How will the commissions meet the deadline then? Well, there is one question that the Legislative Commission will have to consider, and it's on the subject of alternative data. Um, In lieu of using the official redistricting data, the Commission could instead use projected estimates from the Census Bureau's American Community Survey, which has population data down to the block level, but is on a five-year rolling average. Uh, The Commission could also use data from 2019 that counts people down to the block level. And the Census Bureau also has 2020 population estimates that go down to the census group level. Now, none of this is as accurate as the final census data, but the commission could consider using these numbers just to get started. What's the downside of using alternative data? Well, strictly speaking, no one is sure if it's legal. Um, The Colorado Constitution requires the commissions to use, quote, the necessary census data to redraw the districts. Here's Jeremiah Berry, a lawyer for the redistricting commissions. There are two views. One view is that that phrase means the final census data. And the other view is it could be read to mean the census data that is necessary for drawing a preliminary plan and holding hearings on that preliminary plan in the various congressional districts. The commission is expected to seek outside legal counsel to discuss this question of constitutionality in the coming weeks. What is the worst case scenario if the alternative data isn't considered constitutional? The commissions will just have to work really fast. Uh, But if the legislative commission can't or chooses not to use the alternative data, then it's not very likely that it will be able to meet the constitutional deadlines. Thank you, Carla. Thanks for having me, Avery. Carla Jimenez is a public affairs producer for Colorado Matters. Meantime, the commission that will redraw the maps for Colorado's congressional elections is off to a rocky start. CPR's Andrew Kenny explains. At their third meeting ever, the state's independent congressional redistricting commissioners fired their chairman. The bipartisan group had previously selected Danny Moore, a Republican entrepreneur, to lead them. Then reporters discovered his Facebook posts with unfounded accusations about a, quote, Democrat steal in the election and references connecting the pandemic to Chinese people. Moore says he was just trying to start a conversation. But other commissioners say he undermined the public's trust in their work, with one questioning his ability to tell fact from fiction. The group voted unanimously, including the other three Republicans, to remove him as chair. He will remain on the commission. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. You can read Andrew's continuing coverage on this at CPR.org. When nurse Laurel Carpenter goes to the convention center in Grand Junction to give vaccines, she likes to get the closest table to the front so she can see people when they first come in. After witnessing the worst of the pandemic, she's relishing observing the latest chapter and what she's seen. Laurel, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. You're a home health nurse in your day job, but you've been volunteering to give vaccines. Why exactly do you like being near the front? Oh, I really love seeing um, the 
excitement, the nervous excitement on people's faces um, as they stand in line. You know, they a year ago in the beginning of the pandemic, people were sitting in their cars in line, sick, uh, waiting for their testing appointments. And now they're standing there just for a few minutes in line and they're not sick and they're not going to get sick at this point. So it's amazing. Wow. Tell us about the different people who have come in. Yeah, it's a, it's the whole, the whole spectrum of our community. Um, you know, in, in one shift of four hours vaccinating, I vaccinated two local politicians, you know, some farmers wearing overalls with dirt on their hands, um, people who you could tell were carrying everything they owned in a backpack, um, pregnant mothers, breastfeeding women, recent immigrants, uh, two or three generations of a family uh, that had immigrated from somewhere I couldn't identify speaking a language I'd never heard that was very beautiful. So um, it's everybody. And what is the emotion that you're seeing on people's faces as you're at the front of the room? Um, you know, there's still people who are uncomfortable with the idea of the vaccine or with the idea of the pandemic as a whole. Um, but most people um, have that that nervous excitement, that um, really attentive. They're watching everyone else get their shots first. Um, and then when it's their turn, they're in that chair so fast. They're just ready. Wow. And you've been moved by the elderly couples that have arrived together. How How is that? Oh, that's my favorite. Absolutely. I make sure there's an extra chair nearby. And if there's two people in line together, I grab the chair and stick it over there so they can sit down together. Um, and they all say, oh, we don't have to be together, but I want them to be. It's it's great. And then they have this like moment usually of who's going to go first? You go first. No, you go first. Um, and then, you know, 30 seconds later, it's over and done. They both have their shots and I hand them a sticker that says, uh, I got my COVID vaccine. I tell them that's their badge of honor. And then off they go. And you mentioned that there are some people coming in who are still a little hesitant about the vaccine. Are you having conversations with those folks or how do you help them when they get there? I do. Um, you know, I explain to them. Um, I, I try and see if maybe is is the issue that they're worried they'll have a reaction, that they'll get sick. So I talk about that. You know, you might you might experience some soreness in your arm. You might experience some light symptoms, some fatigue, but really encourage them to, to look at that positively and even celebrate it and be like, heck yeah, my immune system is doing its thing. Um, and I just want them to hear those words directed at them. You know, we hear, we hear these messages, these vaccine positive messages in the media, but we need to hear it from the people around us too. And we need to hear that the people we know and trust their judgment said to get the vaccine. So, um, you know, so it becomes more real. Yeah, normalizing it, not just for everyone in general, but for each person in particular. You saw your share of misery early on in the pandemic. You volunteered at night at motels where you were helping unhoused people with COVID. What was your role? Um, I work with a nonprofit, um, a group of nonprofits that have uh, helped the unhoused population with COVID-19 and trying to avoid COVID-19. Um, and we would go and do, you know, a nightly assessment of folks who are... Um, living in these facilities uh, with COVID and make sure, you know, are they declining? Are they improving? Is there any medication they need? Do they need to contact a doctor? Um, and, uh, and now, um, you know, that, that census has decreased to a much, much smaller number than it has ever been before in the last year. And at this point, we're shifting efforts to focus on getting vaccines out into that community instead of dealing with acute, urgent disease process needs. Did you imagine during that time that you'd be giving out a vaccine? 
No, I didn't even, even a month before the vaccine really came to fruition, I didn't really think that, I didn't think it was a thing. <laughs> um, I wasn't sure I believed that, but here, here we are. And, um, you know, the, the science is there. The science is only going to get stronger. Um, vaccines are not perfect, but they are incredible. And I'm so excited that, you know, not only did we get the vaccine, but we have it here in Mesa County, a plenty. It is fairly easy to get an appointment. It's fairly easy to get a vaccine right now. And some of the work that you've been doing is emotionally intense. What do you think will be the long-term effects of the hardship that you've witnessed, along with the joy that you've felt vaccinating people? You know, I, I volunteered in the beginning of the pandemic at the testing site, administering tests, um, which was really difficult. People would drive up in their cars really, really ill. I mean, really ill. Um, and then uh, I volunteered at the call center, taking public health hotline calls where people had questions about um, about the illness, questions about testing and questions about quarantining. And they were really, really scared, really, really concerned. Um, and now, you know, a year down, down the road, we have a really different shared experience. And it's like, you know, this is a collective experience that we're all having together. Um, and I'm, I'm loving that that collective experience feels different now. Um, and it's gone from that palpable, palpable shared fear, uncertainty um, on those voices on the call center lines and in those cars to now this jittery, nervous excitement of the people in line, you know, standing there waiting for the shots, people who are bringing in their elder loved ones um, and, and, you know, standing watching protectively as I give them their injection um, or who are coming in for themselves. Um, so it's, I, maybe it's kind of cathartic to, to do the vaccinations at this point and release some of that um, danger, that, that, that feeling of living surrounded by uncertainty and danger. Yeah. Um, it, does, it doesn't feel that way now. That's such a range. Yeah. You have children and a husband in healthcare, and you felt a good amount of anxiety juggling work and family. But you and a friend who is also a nurse have taken up an unusual hobby to sort of prop each other up. And just about the 30 seconds we have left, tell us about that. Yeah, my best friend, Melissa Humphrey and I, we, um, we are, we are sister nurses and sister mothers together. And um, we like to cross stitch in our bathrobes and, um, you know, eat junk food when we don't need to be taking care of people because you need, you need that release and it's wonderful. And, you know, we take care of each other when we're nursing too. I can text her with any patient scenario that is driving me bananas and she understands exactly what I'm saying. It's invaluable. Yeah. That's an important friendship. Thank you so much for joining us, Laurel. Thanks for having me. Laurel Carpenter is a home health care nurse in Mesa County on the Western Slope. She's also been volunteering to give vaccines at the convention center in Grand Junction. Students' mental health experiences during the pandemic has been mixed. Some kids are thriving, but others struggle, and some adults and pediatric mental health experts are worried about a powder keg of anxiety as more students cycle back into in-person school. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine explains how the state plans to help and what schools are doing now. Rosalinda Guzman was inside a bathroom stall at school when something caught her eye. It was posted there, just a little slip 
You know, really cute, really small, eye-catching. So small and different than the other announcements. And it said, are you feeling stressed? Talk to your counselor today. Email here or just walk in. And so I did. Rosalinda, who goes by Rosie, lives in the small town of Kersey. She's struggled for a long time with anxiety, depression, abandonment issues, and has trust issues from being bullied when she was younger. She's weathered the ups and downs of the pandemic pretty well. But over the past few months, Rosie noticed she's been feeling guilty about eating. It really gets in my head that I have to lose weight and I have to be slim and I can't gain weight. So that makes me just not want to eat. Sometimes she wouldn't eat for five days. Eating disorders among young people are up during the pandemic. The school counselor encouraged Rosie to start journaling her feelings when she eats and connected her to an online eating disorder group. Rosie says she's eating pretty regularly now. Being back in school helped connect her to mental health support. But while kids are at home learning remotely, many can't access mental health interventions that might help. Dr. Jason Williams is with Children's Hospital Colorado. At one point last month, suicidal ideation was the number one reason that kids were actually presenting to our emergency department. I'd never seen that. Actually, in my 20-plus years in my career, I've never seen that. While the number of youth suicides in Colorado was up in 2020, the rates were not statistically higher than the rates for the previous year. Hospital visits show, though, some youth seem to be reaching out for help, possibly because schools haven't been able to provide as many interventions. Williams says the inpatient unit has been full since March a year ago. Some patients wait up to 30 hours for a bed, up from nine hours prior to the pandemic. We've had a 10% increase in our emergency department volumes, just kids who are having a psychiatric emergency. And that's just the first wave of what's happening. Kids are reporting more social isolation. They're reporting more feeling depressed and disconnected from their peers and from their support systems. Seventh grader Kate Hartman says she's lost a lot of her friends from lack of contact. She has anxiety, sensory processing disorder, and ADHD. She likes to be in the middle of the action, helping people. But the pandemic stopped that. I don't love that feeling. And I just felt like I didn't have anything I could control. We'll hear in a bit the silver lining in the pandemic for both Kate and Rosie Guzman. But for now, as a senior in high school, the pandemic is still hard for Rosie. Probably three days ago, I was extremely depressed for, you know, a week and a half. Dr. Jason Williams of Children's Hospital Colorado believes that the loss of certain social and developmental milestones this year will have a long-lasting impact on kids' mental health. Experts predict youth mental health issues now are just the first wave of a coming tsunami. But in Colorado, some help could be on the way. The state hopes to dedicate $8 million in federal stimulus funds towards three free mental health sessions for students 12 years old and up. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to engage in services. Robert Worthwine, director of Colorado's Office of Behavioral Health, expects the money will allow up to 15,000 youth ages 12 and up to sign up. We're really looking at telehealth platforms as being the main platform for youth so they can use their phone, their computer. Some experts worry there aren't enough qualified youth mental health providers to meet the demand. Others recommend that some of the money go to group counseling because youth have been so isolated. Wilderness or art therapy are other ideas. Dr. Tiffany Ayers-Palmer, a trainer with the nonprofit Partners for Children's Mental Health, says the initial three free sessions will be hugely important. But you may want to continue. And what if they don't have the resources to continue that work? How do we sustainably support 
children's mental health in the state of Colorado. More support in schools, for example. We feel like our depression will last forever, our anxiety will last forever. Partners for Children's Mental Health offers live and on-demand courses to school staff, like these on mental health or suicide. And so when explaining these skills, often to kids, I will use the example of the surfer on the waves. It met with school counselors monthly during the pandemic on things like how to train teachers on how to identify kids at risk. Students are desperate for that. Carmen Rodriguez is a sophomore at Peonia High School. She spoke at a mental health forum hosted by the education news site Chalkbeat Colorado. She says when students return to school, no one checked in with them. She doesn't think teachers have adequate training. I definitely wish that we had things like grounding exercises at the beginning of class or guided little breaks throughout or space and patience for kids who are going through a lot to take a break and prioritize their mental health. One national poll found 80 percent of teens wish there was a safe space in school to talk about mental health. Other young people, however, felt well-supported, even online. 12-year-old Kate Hartman of Denver says kids could request counseling support in breakout rooms during classes. Reading Lord of the Flies was tough for Kate. And she helped me get through that. And I had to sometimes take walks or go get fresh air after. And she helped me access the things I needed. But the pandemic also forced some youth like Rosie and Kate to discover and practice more coping techniques. Kate lets her energy out on a new family trampoline. She's gotten closer to her dog. She's the cutest little thing, and she looks exactly like a squirrel. She taught herself the ukulele. She feels like she's developed patience, which has helped her anxiety. She's gotten much closer to her family. I'm learning to accept myself and love myself more, and I'm really working on that. The pandemic gave 18-year-old Rosie time to reflect and come to terms with who she is. She realized a boyfriend at the time wasn't right for her. I think I became a little bit more self-aware of what I want and what I need in my life. (laughs) She has six part-time jobs that she likes, like caregiving for an older woman and tutoring children. And she shows me cards and posters for the Colorado crisis lines below the surface campaign. And it says sometimes anger lies just below the surface, then it has a text line on it. She's going to ask to hang them up in the local gas station and at school. Colorado's Teacher of the Year, Gerardo Munoz. We have young people who are going to be coming back with all kinds of trauma. They're not going to be the same that they were on March 13, 2020. Mental health experts say it's important for everyone, including parents and teachers, to monitor the mental health of young people in the coming year as things get closer to normal. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. This report is part of a special series Jenny is producing focused on students' mental health. Read this and other stories this week at CPR.org. CityCast Denver wants to help residents be engaged in their communities. The new podcast launched two weeks ago, and they've tackled stories on the return of Denver sports, vaccine accessibility, even the ever-controversial rental scooters. We'll dip into a couple of those stories in a moment. First, CityCast Denver host Bree Davies, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You grew up and you've lived most of your life in Denver. Tell me a story about a street in the city that you're attached to. Sure. Um, We kind of use this as our trailer for the show, too, but I talked about Colfax. Um, I just have a special affinity 
for the street because it runs through our entire city. It runs through multiple cities. It's the longest continuous main street in the country. Um, but I also think it encapsulates our humanity in this really wonderful way as a city. Um, I actually have a tattoo of Smiley's laundromat, which is <clears> – <throat> excuse me, an old laundromat that used to be on Colfax and Marion where I did my laundry when I was in college. And um, I just, I, I think this, this street is a metaphor for Denver and that it's often misunderstood. But once you get past the surface level of what's going on on Colfax, there's a deeper story about Denver and who we are and, and everything about us. And so um, it's, it's home to so many of our storied music venues, restaurants, but it's also where a lot of our civic action and activities happen. And, um, and, and, but there's all these mysteries and sort of stories about what Colfax is like and a little bit of a misunderstanding about it being a little, I mean, it is a little bit shady and seedy, but what really wonderful place in a city isn't, I think, and I embrace that. And so when I think about Denver and my favorite places, um, I really think about Colfax. Yeah, there's no question to me. This is a city that you love. CityCast Denver is a daily local news podcast, and it focuses on one story per day. What is your goal when you and your team choose that story for the day? We're trying to find not necessarily what's the most newsy or newsworthy story, but what is what is the thing that everybody wants to be talking about? So it might be something that is very newsy, like a new piece of legislation that's going around. But it also might just be something like, I think the great example we had last week was the cat that went on the field um, in Coors Field during the Rockies game. Everybody was talking about it. So we were like, what is, what is everybody talking about? What can we bring to that conversation that's a little more nuanced and deep? And how can we make it entertaining and exciting while also bringing our listeners information that they maybe didn't know so that they can carry that with them through the rest of the day and feel informed about the city? Well, let's listen to one of those stories about possible changes to the rental bikes and scooters around town. You talked with Jill Locantore. She's the executive director of Denver Streets Partnership, an advocate for safer streets. City Council's Transportation Committee is set to discuss a new proposal to regulate scooters and bike share. Can you explain what the proposal is and where it came from? So they're shifting away from the previous system, which was a permit-based system. And basically, any company that complied with the minimum requirements could get a permit and operate scooters and bike share in Denver. So we had a whole variety of different companies that were operating they're shifting to a license agreement where they put out a request for proposals and companies had to compete to be selected and then negotiate with the city the terms of that license agreement. And the intention that the city had was they wanted to extract more benefits from the, the companies. When scooters first appeared on the streets in 2018, they were kind of just dropped in neighborhoods. Can you talk a little bit about that initial sort of, I don't know if it's a launch or a deployment? <laughs> yeah, previously Denver didn't have any system for regulating scooter share because it, it, it didn't exist before 2018. So the companies just showed up and overnight the, the scooters appeared on the street. Um, and to its credit, the, the city moved pretty fast 
faster than yes. the typical speed of government um, to set up this permit program. Like within months, right? Exactly. Um, and there was, you know, definitely flaws in the program and they learned a lot, uh, which they are incorporating into the, the license agreement to try and better regulate how they're deployed throughout the city. Can you talk a little bit about those flaws or sort of what was the initial issue with the permitting program? I mean, it's hard to implement something after an event happens, but sort of what were the issues with just having a permit program for scooters versus this new licensing idea? Well, one of the big problems was there was no clear space to park the scooters. You know, unlike Mm. cars, we have oodles of public space on our city streets where it's clearly designated for car parking and For the most part, that's where people park their cars, but we don't have anything analogous for scooters. So people weren't sure where to leave them and they would leave them, you know, in the middle of the sidewalk or other places that were really inconvenient. Uh, So part of the new license agreement is they actually are getting the companies to build parking corrals for bikes and scooters at strategic locations around the city. So there is an obvious place for people to park them and they aren't leaving them in the sidewalk or other inconvenient places. Sure, like curb cuts, places where pedestrians, especially folks with disabilities, are trying to access the street or the sidewalk. Exactly. We just have so little space for anything other than cars. You know, we're all kind of fighting for scraps on the the margins of the street. So the more we can gradually reclaim some of that space from cars and instead use it for things like storing scooters or bikes, the less conflict there'll be between all of these people trying to use our limited street space. That's a good way to think about it because initially when you said that, like corrals for these, I'm thinking, oh my God, where on the sidewalk would they go? But you're right. If maybe we can take up one metered parking spot, which I know in Denver, taking away people's parking is a, <laughs> it's a that is a sticky issue, but it would allow for so many more people to utilize this. This is what's considered micro mobility, right? The scooter bike share programs. We call it micromobility to refer to any type of vehicle that's about the size and speed of a bicycle. And we also believe that micromobility should be part of our transportation system. It's a safer, more environmentally friendly, more space efficient way for people to get around than driving. So if we want to meet our goals for climate change, for health equity, we think micromobility must be part of that solution. That's an excerpt from the new CityCast Denver podcast. Host Bree Davies is with us. Denver's Land Use, Transportation and Infrastructure Committee delayed its vote last week on the proposal to provide licensing agreements to transportation companies Lyft and Lime. It will reconsider the proposal at the end of April. Bree, this episode actually influenced your opinion about scooter rentals. Tell me a little bit about that evolution. Sure. So that's something that I love about CityCast Denver is that... um, There's space for me to be honest in my own assessment and opinion while also being open to say, I'm going to listen along with with our listeners to our guest and see what I can learn from this person about a a topic. And I've been very (laughs) notoriously open about how I don't like scooters. Um, (laughs) And I touched on it a little bit in that conversation with Jill, but um, my my friend group really intersects with the disability community. So that's who I think about when I think about scooter usage. Um, Not only are they not accessible to folks with disabilities, but they often impede um, on 
basic uh, getting around the city issues are only made worse sometimes by where scooters end up. And so that's kind of the the thought process I was in when I was thinking about this scooter issue. But talking to Jill really opened my eyes to the idea that we need to look further. It's not just about the scooters. It's about our car usage as well. And say, what part of the city infrastructure can we maybe reallocate to those scooters so that they are out of the way, but they're still accessible to folks who want to use them. And in turn, that can get some people out of their cars, get people you know what I mean? Like deal in, deal with our trap. I mean, our traffic is obviously a huge issue. And so talking to Jill and really rethinking how or where scooters could be in the bigger ecosystem of transit alongside um, pedestrian, you know, just regular use of the sidewalks and the streets. Uh, it really made me think like, oh, there is, this is a possibility and this is a positive thing for our city. It just really has to be regulated in a way that supports all pedestrians. There are a lot of layers there. Another episode that's important to you touches on another access issue in the disability community, vaccinations. You talked with Rosemary McDonald-Harita. She's an advocate and member of the disability community. And this episode covered a lot of obstacles people with different disabilities faced in earlier phases of the vaccine rollout and still face. Here's just one. Thinking about the different logistics that it takes for people with disabilities to get to a vaccine appointment, whether it's... Um, scheduling transportation through Accessoride or asking a family friend or someone close to you to be able to drive you to your appointment if you have access to a car. Um, you know, thinking about some of those logistics and how you have to plan ahead. But a lot of these vaccines are like, okay, we have an appointment today at 2.15. Can you come in? And you're scrambling. Like if, you're, if you have a car and you can just get in and drive, great. But if you need care attendance and if you have accessoride and you need to figure out the rest of your day, it's not as easy. And fun fact, a lot of these vaccine booking appointment websites are not accessible for people who are blind or low vision. So as I'm sitting here stalking all these websites trying to get an appointment, one of my friends said that he had to wait on hold and ask He's like, I got tired of waiting on hold, so I asked another friend that I could trust with my healthcare information to go online and book it for me because I couldn't do it myself. Because the websites are not accessible. Mm -hmm. This is, conversation is helpful for me to fully understand access. Like, this isn't just about who's in line for the vaccine. It's can you get in line? Exactly. Um, so Denver just started a program that brings vaccines to people's homes if you're unable to leave for health and safety reasons. This seems like it could solve part of these problems, but I'm still wondering if this covers people who can't get to the vaccine site because of transportation. Yeah, I was reading about that a little bit more this morning, and I think it works. And I was thinking about the people that it would benefit, specifically that I know in Denver. Yeah. And I think it's important and... I also know a lot of people with disabilities who can't afford to live in the city limits of Denver anymore. Good point. And so if, if I wanted that, and it also said that it would cover, you know, whoever your caretaker is at home, um, that's great. But a lot of Crips can't afford to live in Denver anymore. We're living in, in Wheat Ridge, right. Ridge, Lakewood, Arvada, Aurora. Um, so what does that mean? And why is it just Denver? 
and mm. and how is it limiting so many people, especially in rural areas who don't, definitely don't have access to specific transportation that they might need. I think it would be really great for our community. But my question is why just Denver? Yeah. No, you make you make a good point too because so many so many of us have moved out of the city proper and not necessarily by choice. But then it becomes, oh, you're not in this municipality, so you don't have access. An- another barrier, basically. Well, Rosemary, this has been so wonderful. Thank you for talking with me, always. Thank you. It's always so fun. On that last point, we did some research on at-home vaccine appointments in Wheat Ridge, Lakewood, Arvada, and Aurora, and we found one provider, Bloom Healthcare, that's offering at-home appointments. Again, an excerpt from CityCast Denver, a new daily podcast hosted by Bree Davies. Bree, you've already made a point in the first several episodes to really highlight the disability community. What other issues and topics do you want CityCast Denver to be engaging with regularly? Well, I think everything that has to do with our daily lives. So the disability community obviously is close to me, and I feel that it's extremely underrepresented when we talk about media coverage. Um, So they're always going to be front and center for me. But our black and brown communities, um, environmental issues, climate issues, transit issues, um, but then also highlighting things in the city that I think are really wonderful. Restaurants, I mean, as venues begin to reopen, this has been a a year of really big struggle for a lot of our, I mean, live music is what our city is really known for. And I come from the arts and culture world. So I'm always thinking about what artists are experiencing or what artists are going through. So I'm hoping we can do some positive stories around that too, as well as looks at our culture and our history and sort of just digging a little bit deeper into who and what Denver is and what makes us a great city. Yeah, you're with CityCast Denver and CityCast Chicago also launched recently. The new CityCast Network wants to launch local daily news podcasts around the country. Is there something about that local news mission that energizes you? It's what I do. It's what I just do naturally. I think about Denver all the time. Um, I, I started writing about Denver, gosh, over a decade ago for Westward, Um it, I began writing about the city through my just my lens of my life, but it really became a mission for me to cover the city in a way that I felt was honest and real, but also fair and just getting a little bit past this surface of um, what what folks might think we are versus what we really are. And we're a really complex and nuanced city, and we don't always get the benefit of being able to say like how interesting <clears> – <throat> excuse me, how interesting our history is. I mean, even again, talking about the disability community, we were one of the epicenters in the 70s of the disability rights movement. And at the same time, we were looking at the Chicano civil rights movement also being happening here in Denver. And those are the kinds of stories that I want to tell. And I think the local news angle that we have is the perfect vehicle for us to get a little bit deeper and to really just engage listeners who maybe are brand new to the city, but also people that have lived here for generations. I want us to be able to reach and connect with them in a way that says, this is important to me and it makes me feel proud to be from Denver. Yeah. And one of the ways that CityCast describes its mission is to make listeners better or more curious citizens. Just briefly, how do you do that? I think the Scooter show is a great example. Um, How do we get people involved with local, local, on the civic level? Like, 
we think about politics and we think on a national level, but there's so much going on in our cities that we can actually be involved with. We're constituents. We have council members that are responsible for hearing from us. And so if we can get folks involved civically on an issue that really matters to them, I think that we've done our job. And one of those ways is just getting folks on the show to talk about something that might seem a little bit complex in a news story, but could be a little bit better explained in a conversation. Well, Brie, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. Brie Davies is the host of CityCast Denver, a new local daily news podcast. It's available on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Rockies pitcher Daniel Bard's inspiring comeback story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Maps can take you places you've never been and show you something you've never seen. I'm Anna Campbell. The team at Denverite has been combing the city for Map Week. How did neighborhoods get their shapes? Where could another dispensary be squeezed in? And could your neighborhood affect your life expectancy? These are just some of the Map Week stories you'll get from Denverite in your inbox and at denverite.com. Powered by Colorado Public Radio. Tonight, the Colorado Rockies begin a homestand against the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Rockies are hoping to bounce back from a rough season last year and a slow start this year. Rockies pitcher Daniel Bard knows a little something about bouncing back in life. Prior to 2020, Bard had not pitched in the majors for seven years because of a baffling mental condition called the yips. CPR's Vic Bella recently spoke with Bard about his remarkable road to recovery. Swing and a miss, and Bard's looking awfully good today. That's his second strikeout. When Daniel Bard played for the Boston Red Sox beginning in 2009, he quickly became one of the elite relief pitchers in all of baseball. He threw 102 mile per hour fastballs and was just dazzling to watch. Swing and a miss, strikes out Longoria, strikes out the side. But almost as quickly as he rose to baseball stardom, Bard soon fell apart due to a sudden and really hard to explain loss in fine motor skills and a psychological barrier that kept him from doing things that he used to do really well without even thinking about. It's a mental it's a mental block. But I guess when the yips come in, you kind of lose that, that automatic where you just see the target and hit it. And you, you start telling yourself, okay, I need to be a little bit better. I need to be better. And you start trying to force perfection. Mm. Um, it's kind of like being a musician, you know, like a great musician can get on stage and when things are good, they're just free-flowing, right? They don't have to think. And then like when you start thinking about which note you're supposed to be pressing at the right, make sure it's at the perfect time. It loses that beauty and it loses the uh, that free flowing. You know what what makes live music great to listen to. It's the same reason watching somebody at their best on a mound um, is a beautiful thing. And when it's when they start overthinking, it's it's not that beautiful anymore. Bard had that beauty for much of 2011, but in the last month of the season, it seemed like he couldn't get anybody out. And those struggles carried over into the next season, and the next, and the next, until one day, he decided, enough is enough. Toward the end of the 2017 season, I just had a really frustrating day. Uh, One of of hundreds that I had over that time span, but I just hit a particular day that I was like, you know what, I think this is it. And uh, I remember driving home in the car that day. And I just said, I don't want to throw anymore. I'm done. Like, this is it. And I, I... Wow. I cried. I remember crying, but it was like, 
like relief, like tears of relief. <laughs> I was just like, man, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, it's a really good feeling actually to just be able to say it out loud. Did you think you would ever pitch again? No, I had zero intention of ever pitching again. After that decision, Bard took an interesting job as a mental skills coach with the Arizona Diamondbacks. He wanted to use his experiences, both the good and bad, to help mentor others. It was really, I think, therapeutic for me to to be able to give back to the game. Even though I was burnt out and didn't want to play myself, I realized that, you know, my experience... Although it wasn't a happy ending, it still had some value to, uh, to other guys. I mean, you helped these guys heal. Did you find out something about yourself during that job? For sure. I, I think um, I kind of viewed my career as failure, right? Like I had this chance to pitch, you know, 15 years in the big leagues and be one of the best. And I kind of felt like I blew it for whatever reason after two, or th- after three or four years. And then I told the story so many times to players you know, just as part of getting to know them or, you know, helping helping them through stuff. And the reaction overall was like, oh, man, that's awesome. That's so cool that you battled through it for as long as you did. Like most people would have given up quicker or, you know, it's awesome that you're using your experience to try to help other people. And I was like, I was kind of blown away that they saw my career in such a positive light. And I didn't, you know, at that time. Pretty soon he found his confidence again. And he started throwing the baseball again on his own time. And he was throwing it well. And he felt good. And I was having conversations with my wife saying, telling her how good it felt. Like, oh, I'm throwing in the mid-90s. I'm throwing strikes again. It feels feels free. I'm having so much fun every time I throw. And she was like, you you have to try it. I was Mm. like, what do you mean? She's like, I can tell if you don't make a, a comeback attempt that you'll regret it at some point. So as crazy as it was for me to like wow. quit my job that I had and I got, I've got three kids, had a, you know, had a secure income. I quit my job with no, no guarantee of even a team signing me. So with nothing to lose, Bard held a tryout at a nearby high school and several baseball scouts attended. Bard threw really well. And in February of 2020, at the age of 35, Bard signed with the Colorado Rockies. And that same year, he pitched in his first major league game in seven years. Welcome back to the big leagues, Daniel Bard. What a story. In fact, Bard performed so well last season, he was named the National League's Comeback Player of the Year. Now entering his second season with the Rockies, Bard is actually grateful for the adversity that he went through. I used to say I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but then I kind of changed my tune on that because I think I gr- I've grown so much as a person through my my experience with that that I like myself better now than I did before I went through it. You know, it makes you appreciate things so much more. It's forced me to dig deeper and, and examine some things inside myself that I wouldn't have had, had to if I didn't go through it. I went through addiction, and, and I'm glad I went through it because going through that adversity and through that recovery has made me a better person. Wow. So, so I can relate to what you just said about that, right? Like That's pretty you, cool. I've never heard it compared to that, but I, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. Like, I imagine with you, like talking with another addict is different than talking with someone who's never experienced it. Yeah, um, I mean, it's kind of the same way with with what I went through. Guy, other talking to other guys who have been through it, it's like 
kind of this weird like brotherhood <laughs> yeah because kind of, you just said there's some shared experience there that you just it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't lived it did you ever think you would be here after everything you went through uh no chance no when i retired i was happily done with baseball as a player you know i literally thought i had tried everything uh everything there was to try on the, <laughs> as far as you know what people recommend for getting over these mental uh performance issues and uh, the one thing I didn't try was was walking away. You know, I found I found some meaning and value in my life after giving the game up, and I think that's what's allowed me to come back and perform consistently. Now is like I love this game, I love the competition. Uh, I want to win as bad as anybody when I'm out there. But like at the end of the day, I realize it's just a game. There's a lot more to my life than this. There's more to life whenever this my career ends again. And uh, I'm just trying to enjoy it, um, you know, as long as it lasts. Colorado Rockies pitcher Daniel Bard speaking with CPR's Vic Vela. The Rockies dropped three in a row after winning the home opener against the Dodgers. They're hoping for a better showing against the Diamondbacks in a three-game series that starts tonight. Thanks for joining us today and to our own team who always helps us pitch a perfect game. Carl Bielek, Ali Butner, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.